Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We, the elders, are of... Uh decided to teach through the book of uh, 1 Timothy, uh, just kind of as a help to uh, our church family here to really have a good understanding of what the purpose of a New Testament church is, how it's supposed to function. And 1 Timothy actually does a really good job uh, at doing that. And so uh, we, the elders, have been uh, taking on the responsibility, sharing the responsibility of teaching through uh, 1 Timothy. And um, our brother Alan gave us uh, the introduction to uh, 1 Timothy last time that he spoke. And, and if you can remember back with me um, what Alan had taught us is about this charge that had been given to Timothy um, because he commands him and says, hey, look, uh, I want, I'm charging you, Timothy. I'm sending you over here to the church of Ephesus to really kind of help sort some things out in this church because there had been some individuals in that church, uh, some teachers, that had been teaching other forms of doctrine, things that were not uh, scripturally based or things that may have uh, been uh, based out of scripture, but they were twisting those things to make them say things that they weren't. Um, They were going into uh, myths and endless genealogies, which promoted um, all kinds of vain discussion. Uh, It wasn't helping people grow in their faith uh, with Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, listen, the way that we need to be teaching is out of a pure heart of good conscience, right, with faith. And he talks about some of those things. And so it's important that when we talk about what what Scripture says, what what the purpose of it is, that we as a church understand that we have been uh, commissioned by God to follow Scripture, and to be teaching Scripture according to what the Word of God says, not going into endless genealogies or myths or fables or uh, things that promote uh, vain discussions. And so I believe that us elders teaching through this book will be very helpful because in doing so, we are bringing our traditions, our preconceived ideas and doctrines under the authority of Scripture. And so I've been tasked this morning to continue our teaching here out of 1 Timothy verses 8 through 11, chapter 1, which is going to talk about the usefulness of God's laws. And as I stated before, that this church had some false teachers um, in the church, and Paul says of them, in, in fact, in verse number 7, he says that these false teachers desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions assertions there. He says that they didn't understand what they're talking about. And he says because of that, they're going into all kinds of weird teaching. And so Paul sends Timothy there to Ephesus to help them straighten some of these things out. So what is the purpose of God's law? Why do we need it? Because Paul even talks about that the, that the uh, law is actually very useful if you use it correctly, if you're using it lawfully. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. God's law is useful to show people their sin and bring them to an understanding of the gospel. 
God's law is useful to show people their sin and bring them to an understanding of the gospel. Let's take note here the first thing. Number one, what the law does. Listen to what Paul says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now remember, Paul is writing to Timothy to confront these false teachers who were using the law but didn't understand what they were saying and didn't understand the meaning of those things that they were teaching about. Now it's a good possibility that these fake teachers, these false teachers in this church were Jews that had a bent towards being a Pharisee or a Judaizer, in other words, stressing certain things about the law in order that they might become in more better standing with God. One of those things is about with circumcision or eating only certain meats or only observing certain types of days. And that's where you get into a lot of this stuff where he talks about like these endless genealogies where they might be like, well, I can trace my genealogy all the way back to, you know, and I have really great historical understanding of it, you know, whatever, okay? But that was a problem that was going on in the church there. And so they might have been bent more towards uh, being a Pharisee. They probably taught that keeping the Old Testament law was a means of salvation, but they themselves were living in an immoral lifestyle. Uh, it's also possible that these false teachers were using the law in a way to promote legalism. Uh, if uh, I grew up in a very legalistic type uh, background, went to a legalistic uh, type uh, Bible college where there was a stress on certain things that you had to do it just this way and you couldn't do it any else way because if you did, then you were worldly. Um, and that was very damaging because the Bible tells us that uh, we are saved by grace and we live by grace. And uh, sometimes those things can be very controlling and it can put you in a, uh, a habit of trying to perform for God. And that could have been a possibility what was going on in this church as well. Um, they might have been promoting certain rules that God would like you more, keep you from indulging in the flesh. Uh, Paul actually talks about this in this letter to the Colossians. He writes in Colossians 2.23, he says, They seem to be wise, but they are only part of human religion, speaking of these keeping of rules and traditions. He says, They make people pretend not to be proud and make them punish their bodies, but they do not really control the evil desires of the sinful self. Uh, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because on one hand they were promoting a work sort of righteousness, urging the keeping of the law, both the law of Moses and other various traditions, but at the same time they were inwardly licentious and lawless. Matthew 23, 25 through 8 says, Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside 
may become clean too. Woe to you, experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you look righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what does the law do? What is the purpose of the law here? Because Paul says they were using it inappropriately. They weren't using it right. And so there has to be a correct way to use the law, and there has to be a purpose for the law. And so in order to understand that question, we need to understand that there is a purpose for the law. And so here it is. Number one, the purpose of God's law is not to try to be saved by keeping it. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. You cannot have your forgiveness of sins by trying to perform for God by doing righteous or holy things. If anyone was a keeper of the law, it would have to be the Apostle Paul. Who better to teach us the real reason for the law than Paul? The keeping of the law was really the entire thrust of uh, his life before he was converted. He said this in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. He says, Though mine too are significant, if someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. There's the genealogies, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. Galatians 1, 13-14, Paul writes, For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I was savagely persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my nation and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. So here was a guy who was so zealous for the law, thinking that keeping the law and the Jewish traditions was actually the way to salvation. But in actuality, he was a violent persecutor of the church. Paul's real problem and our problem as well is always our hearts. Our hearts must have an inner righteousness, not just these outward appearances and keeping of the law. God's law requires inner righteousness. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for though the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's law can be compared to a mirror. The purpose of that mirror is not to wash your face, but rather to show you the dirt on your face and drive you to soap and water. And so the God's word, his law, shows us our true need that we are sinful before God. And it should drive us to Christ. And so the law shows us our sin. The purpose of the law is to convict you of your sin and drive you to Christ for cleansing. Keeping the law can't save you because, as we shall see here in just a moment, no one is able to keep it perfectly. Only Christ can save. And so if the law can't save us and if we can't keep it, we are prone to say that the problem then is with the law. But notice what Paul says here. 
he says that the law is what? Good. If one uses it lawfully. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is our sinful nature. It is only the delusion of our sinful pride that makes us think that we can commend ourselves to a holy God by keeping His law. When we look more carefully at the law, we discover, here's the second thing, that the purpose of God's law is to bring conviction of sin. So the law, just keeping the law cannot save us, but the law is good. And what is that good for? It's to bring us under conviction of sin. Paul says that the law is not made for the just. Look what he says here, verse number 9. The law is not made for the just or the one who is righteous, a righteous man inwardly, right? He says, but it's for the lawless and the disobedient. So what is this law here that he is talking about? Well, he mentions this law once before in verse number 7. And now two other times in verses 8 and 9. Is it just one law? Or laws? Which law are laws? All the laws? All the, all the, uh, all the ceremonial laws? All the, uh, all the laws that uh, have to do with moral laws and civil laws? Is it every law? Which laws is he talking about here? Well, Paul tells us. He gives us a list of sins here. Verses 9 and 10. Look what he says here. He says, It's for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, now here they are, for those who strike their mothers and fathers and murders, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I understand what Paul is saying here as the law as being the Ten Commandments. He's making a parallel here, and you can see that in, in some of these, uh, these verses here. Um, because when Paul refers to a righteous man, I take him as meaning as one who has been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Such persons are the only ones who are truly righteous because they have God's righteousness imputed to them. A merely good man by human standards or a self-righteous man uh, is still under God's condemnation and thus needs the law to reveal his sinfulness. But Paul clearly says here that the law is not for the just, the righteous, but for the lawless and the disobedient. So the question or conversation sometimes naturally arises as a Christian, do we need to follow the law anymore? Are we still under the law? Because Paul says here that the law is actually for what? For the unjust, for, the, for the, those that are unrighteous, those that are disobedient. Let me try to answer that question biblically. Paul here is referring to those who have been declared righteous by faith in Christ, and such persons are not under the law, but now are under grace. Romans 6.14 says this, For sin will have no mastery over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. In speaking of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23, Paul says, gentleness and self-control, against such things there is no law. Now this does not mean that they are lawless. They are under the law now of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. 
You used to be a slave of sin, but now you are a slave of righteousness. You were under the condemnation of the law, but now because you, if you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you are now under the law of the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the life-giving Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul makes reference to this law that believers are under, and he calls it the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21, To those free from the law, I became like one free from the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but under the law of Christ, to gain those free from the law. Also, the law is still beneficial to believers, because notice what Paul says here again. He says that the law is what? It's good if you use it lawfully. So for those of us who know Christ, the law reveals God's righteous character and how we must live to please Him. But since Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, as what Romans 10.4 says, we who are in Christ are not subject to the law's condemnation now. Because we have been set free from the penalty of the law, which says what? The soul that sins, it will die. But we have been set free from that because of Christ. And so the primary function of the law is to bring conviction of sin to those who are still in rebellion against God. And so Paul says that the law is for the lawless, God's law speaks to the sinner to reveal his sin and convict him of sin. Because notice the parallels here, what Paul uses, what I believe is the Ten Commandments with what he says here. And he gives this catalog of sins that parallels roughly in order sins against God and sins against man. Look what he says. He says those that are ungodly and, and sinners for the unholy and profane. Those that are profane, those that are unholy before God, what do they do? They use God's name in vain. They worship other gods, right? These, these are things that parallel the Ten Commandments. Then he goes in talking about those that deal with the sins against man. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. Those that are disobedient to their parents. Then he says, for murderers. God even tells that, right? He says that you should not commit murder. Then he says, for the sexually immoral, those that may uh, indulge in adultery or any type of fornication, and here he gives specifics, he talks about men who practice homosexuality. Then he says, enslavers, liars, perjurers. And then he kind of throws in just kind of a catch-all phrase here, and he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Whatever else is contrary to the teachings of God's truth, if you go against the teachings of God's truth, you are guilty of breaking the law. And so he says, whatever else is contrary to that. And so what Paul is trying to do here is to show the difference between the righteous or the just person for home and the lawless and disobedient person for which the law is not intended for. 
And he's trying to show how the law reveals our inward sin and sinful actions. It's interesting here because I think at first glance, the person of, of, of morality, maybe even all of us, we might look at this list and we're just like, yikes, yeah, there's no way. I would never, I'd never do any of this kind of stuff. But really, when you look a little bit more carefully, I think that this list would convict even the most moral person because who has never been lawless or rebellious against God? We all have. Who has not been ungodly and missed the mark of God's righteousness as a sinner? We all have. Who has not been unholy and profane to tread on which is sacred? All of us have. Who has not been disrespectful and striking out at his parents, if not physically, but in word or thoughts? We all have. Who has not been angry enough to kill someone, except if the law would not prevent you from doing it? We all have. Because even Jesus said that if you hate your brother, what have you done? You've committed murder already in your heart. Who has not entertained immoral thoughts? We all have. Who has not taken that which is not rightfully his? All of us. Who has not bent the truth? We all have. Who has not wrongfully desired that which is another's? We all have. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the truthful teaching or doctrine found in God's word, on all ten accounts we stand guilty before God. And so the law is good to show us our sin, to show us that we are really not just, that we are really not that great people that we think that we really are. But it only takes one count is what we learn in Scripture to convict us because the law is like a chain. And if you break one point in that chain, you're guilty of breaking it all. In the book of James 2.10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So even if you were very, very moral and upstanding and you could keep all nine of these, but yet offended in one of those points, you've broken all of them. Because one violation of God's law brings condemnation. And so the law is aimed at those who have not been justified by faith in Christ to bring them to a point of despair so they will sense their condemnation before a holy God. And this is really the bad news of everyone. And so if we are going to use the law, then we need to use it lawfully, not using it in a way to try to perform for God, but in a way that... As a church, we need to make sure that if we talk to people about Christ, we don't just try to make the gospel palatable enough for them that they'd be like, oh yeah, I'd really like to try Jesus. No, we need to show them their sin and show them that they are guilty before God. Because the law is good if it's used lawfully. And the law is good to help bring people under conviction of their sin. But God does not leave us in despair. You see, the law is not revealed apart from the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our second thing here. The law reveals our need for the gospel. Notice how Paul makes the connection here with uh, verses 10 and 11 here. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance 
or in agreement with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. And so the flow of thought is that the law is not for the righteous, but for sinners. And it's in accordance with the gospel. You see, the gospel proclaims that Christ bore the curse of the law for us. The law proclaims that we ought to obey God, but we haven't. And furthermore, we can't. It's not in our willpower to do it. And so we're condemned. The gospel proclaims that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, is what Galatians 3.13 says. Now take note of three things that the gospel does according to this verse. Number one, the gospel will heal the disease sinner. That word sound there literally means healthy or whole. Spiritually healthy or whole. And so when Paul talks about sound doctrine, he's talking about healthy doctrine. Whole, whole doctrine that is spiritually sound, that helps you grow. And so these people in this church, they were teaching unhealthy doctrine that resulted in vain discussions and not understanding what they were teaching because he says they were desiring to be teachers of the law, but yet they didn't even understand what they were talking about. And it was just promoting a lot of nonsense in the church. And in fact, that word sound or healthy teaching is a predominant theme in uh, First and Second Timothy and also uh, the book of Titus. Uh, this word sound or spiritual health occurs eight times in these letters and nowhere else as referring to uh, spiritual health. There's one other reference, but it's in reference in uh, the book of Luke. But it's talking about the fatted calf that was healthy. We're not talking about doctrine there, right? We're talking about a cow that's healthy. So, but in reference to the fact that teaching being sound or healthy, uh, that Paul makes mention of that. Uh, the good news is that no matter how spiritually diseased a person may be, no matter how far gone in sin that they may be, there is healing in the gospel and in the teaching of God's word. And that's really the great news because when a person comes under conviction of their sin that they cannot run away from God, that the long arm of the law has come after them and they are under the condemnation and the weight and the guilt of their sin, the good, the good news of the gospel speaks volumes and it says, forgiveness, life, you can be set free. And so it's so important that when we teach, we are teaching sound doctrine in accordance to the gospel because it brings spiritual health to those that need it. You see, religion can clean up the outward person, but only Jesus Christ and the sound teaching of his word can heal a sinful heart. And I don't mean to imply that believing the gospel brings instant, total, uh, all my sins, I, I no longer struggle with anything anymore, right? Because we know that still living in this world, we still have a sinful flesh. But through the power of the gospel, what is happening we are being saved from our sins on a daily basis. We're being saved from the power of those sins as we believe the gospel more and more and we trust in God's word and we believe what he has to say. And we, one day we will be delivered from uh, sins totally, but that will not be until Jesus Christ returns 
and uh, we will be given a new body fashioned like his own. Second thing here, God's glory is revealed through the gospel. Look what he says here. Notice how he makes the connection here. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And so the gospel, the good news, is the revealing of who God is. God's glory is the splendor of his attributes. The gospel reveals God's glory, his love, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his wisdom, and power. Paul later on in 1 Timothy 6.15 will write and describes as God as the blessed God, which is the only place in Scripture where that is used. And this does not refer to men blessing God, but rather the fact that God is in and of himself blessed. He's truly happy. He is perfect in himself. The source of all true happiness and joy is found in God through the gospel. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to point people to Jesus Christ, that they might find life and hope and true joy and forgiveness in God and God alone. And it's so important that we as a church understand that, that that's the purpose of us gathering together to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we have been entrusted with the gospel. Look what he says here. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Paul will later talk about how and prove that he was the chief among sinners, uh, later on in uh, 1 Timothy 1 there. And yet God saved him and entrusted him with proclaiming this awesome gospel message. He had this responsibility to do that. He said, I'm a debtor, both to the Jew and to the Greek, right, to proclaim the gospel. And so the solemn truth is that God does not save us so that we might live happy lives for ourselves and then one day go to heaven, right? He has entrusted us with the gospel, with the message of the gospel, It's been entrusted to us to take that gospel message and to continue to proclaim it to all who will hear. That's you, that's me, that's you at your workplace, that's you in your neighborhood, that's you wherever you frequent uh, certain places where you've built relationships with individuals that God has brought into your sphere of influence for you to proclaim Christ's message of the gospel, the good news that they can have their sins forgiven. And so Christ has left us on this earth to proclaim his message of reconciliation to others. You know, he could have shouted it from the sky or he could have used angels, but he didn't. He uses redeemed sinners to take the message to lost sinners. God has entrusted every believer with the gospel to take it to a lost world. So the charge for us as the family of Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship is We are to make sure that we are holding on to sound teachings of God's word, teaching the truth about sin, the law, and the holiness of God, while proclaiming the gospel, the good news, that Jesus can and will save all of those who come to him by faith alone, through Christ alone. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, 
visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.